0: Well, good morning, church. It's good to be with you this morning. I must admit, I feel a little bit exposed, because usually when I'm standing up here, I have a guitar in front of me. <laughs> so I feel like there's nothing between us. Um, so hopefully that's the case for the rest of the morning. Um, but it's good to be with you. Um, I've been, um, I've got the privilege of speaking across the day. Um, so I was preaching this morning at the 9 a.m. gathering. Um, I'm here with you now, um, and we'll be with our 7 p.m. gathering later on. Um, and just want to encourage us this morning that we're part of this church, which is really large, um, but meets across three gatherings. And that when we come together, we're all part of one church family um, who are on a mission to see this city transformed for Jesus. Um, and it's a real joy to be with you this morning. And like um, Luke has mentioned, we're going to be uh, looking at what the Bible has to say to us about worship And just to set the scene of where we're going, um, I want to do a bit of a deep dive into the scriptures, um, draw up a bunch of different passages that just give us a bit of an insight into what it is that the Lord asks of us when it comes to worship. What does he require? What does he desire? And ultimately, because he's worthy, what does he deserve of our lives? But before we do that, um, I was here last night. There was a a big tear fund quiz. Was anyone here for the quiz last night? Yeah, a lot of fun was had, some money was raised, questions were answered, Um, we didn't come last, my team, which was a win, (laughs) um, which is always a good thing. But the quiz last night inspired me, Um, and seeing as I was talking about worship this morning, um, I don't know about you, but one of the first things that jumps into my mind when I think about song worship in particular is um, a brilliant Sunday afternoon TV programme called Songs of Praise. Anyone a Songs of Praise fan? Okay, a couple of people. There was far, far more response at the 9am. Um, but there's a handful of Song of Praise fans here. And I want to do a really short little mini quiz um, around Songs of Praise. So I've got three questions, and there's an A and a B answer. And just with a show of hands, I just want you to put your hands up for either question um, answer A or answer B, and we'll, we'll see how far we get. If you were here for the 9am and you know the answers already, please don't cheat, because I'm watching you. But here we go. Question one. Right, what is the all-time most popular hymn sung on songs of praise is it a amazing grace or is it b how great thou art so let's see some hands for a amazing grace okay a speckle of people and let's go b how great thou art okay i think that's the majority the answer is b how great thou art so if you chose b well done question two Now, this is for people who may be a bit more keen and bigger fans of um, Songs of Praise, because most of you probably won't know the answer to this one. But who holds the record for presenting the most episodes of Songs of Praise? Is it A, Pam Rhodes, whoever that is, (laughs) or is it B, Alid Jones? A, Pam Rhodes, hands. Okay. And B, Alid Jones? Oh, it's about a 50-50 split. The answer is A, Pam Rhodes, who apparently is by a long mile in the lead. And final question, question three. This might be a guess, or you may actually know the answer to this one, but what y- what was the first? Sorry, what year did the first episode of Songs of Praise air? Is it A, 1961, or is it B 1971? So let's have a show of hands for A, 1961 quite a lot of people Then let's go B 1971 oh I think B was the one that people had more hands for but the answer is A so if you chose 1961 good job did anyone get all three right well done well done Sharon good job good job and After all of this about Songs of Praise, I must admit that um, the main thing that me and my family used to watch on a Sunday afternoon was Ski Sunday, um, if anyone remembers Ski Sunday. (laughs) So Songs of Praise is a bit of a miss um, for me. But it's true to say that the vast majority of people um, may have seen Songs of Praise on the telly. They may have heard about it or they know what the premise is. And I think it's safe to say as well that the vast majority of people will have uh, watched a royal wedding on TV or more recently they may have seen a royal funeral. And I think it's also safe to say that the vast majority of people will have watched the World Cup, um, sorry, the FA Cup final at some point, or you might have seen a Welsh rugby game. And you might be thinking, what do all these things have in common? A funeral, a wedding, it sounds like a bad joke, doesn't it? Um, they all have in common that uh, at each of them, a worship song is sung. And millions of people around the world or thousands of people in a specific place will sing a song of worship. Abide With Me has been sung at every FA Cup final since 1927. And Bread of Heaven, or Guide Me, O Thou Great Redeemer, is sung at the majority of Welsh rugby games. And in a crowd of football fans or rugby fans, it's not really the kind of place you would expect to find up to potentially 90,000 people singing the story of God and singing the story of Jesus, broadcast to millions or billions in the case of Queen Elizabeth's funeral. But I think that goes to show that worship music and hymns in particular are an ingrained part of um, British culture and so many other cultures around the world. But the question here is, is, is this worship? Is that worship? And don't get me wrong, I think it's amazing that so many people hear the words, of the beautiful hymn, Abide With Me, on FA Cup final day, where there's that verse and it says, Where is death's sting? Where grave thy victory? I triumph still if thou abide with me. People are hearing the gospel when this song is sung. But the question is, is this true worship? Is a stadium full of people singing lyrics to songs without a knowledge or acceptance of the truth of what they're saying, worship? That's the question that I want us to grapple with today. So like I said, we're going to do a bit of a deep dive into some scripture around um, that gives some advice and instructions and directions about how it is that we worship Jesus. And I think most of us now could give a definition of what we understand worship to be. Some of us might say um, that worship is singing, it's music to the Lord, it's what we do when we gather as church, we have times of worship and yeah, that's true. Some of you who are um, real holy rollers might take that a step further and say, actually, worship is a lifestyle. And that is also true. Worship is a lifestyle, it's something that we are called to do every day. But these two things, I don't think they quite capture the fullness of what the worship of Jesus is and what it actually involves. So here's a bunch of scriptures to help shape or potentially reshape our understanding and our perception of what it means to worship the living God. So they're going to come up on the screen behind me, hopefully, Jack. um, And I've put them on the screen because there's a bunch of them we're going to race through. um, So hopefully you can keep up. Um, So Psalm 95, which is the passage that we're going to be focusing on today. It says, Sing for joy, shout aloud to the Lord, the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. It says, Let us come kneel before our maker. Let us bow before him. We've got to sing, to shout, to kneel, to bow, to bring thanksgiving, and with joy to do these things. That's Psalm 95. Psalm 100, it says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. Psalm 92, it is good to praise the Lord and make music to your name, O Most High. In Ephesians 5, it says, Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is just a handful of examples, but there is so much throughout the Scriptures that points to what it is to worship and some instructions on how to worship. And the majority of them in this, um, of those that we've looked at, are physical expressions. For example, kneeling or bowing or singing or making music or shouting for joy, even dancing. And I know that some of you just felt a little bit tense when I mentioned dancing in church, but it's in the book, so we've got to mention it. And um, maybe the Lord's encouraging you to what it is to dance um, in worship this morning, but who knows. Um, But Scripture makes it plain that worshipping God is a very physical expression. And Romans 12 calls us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. It says this is your true and proper worship. But as that passage from Romans suggests, to worship is not just physical, because we can wave our hands in the air all we want, and we can sing and shout as loud as we physically can. But if our external expression of worship, if it doesn't match and align with an internal desire to praise and worship him, then there's something missing. In that passage again from Ephesians 5, it tells us to be filled with the spirit as we worship. That it's by the spirit that we sing songs. That it's by the spirit that we speak hymns and psalms over one another and give thanks to God. That our spirit connects with God, who is spirit, as it says in John 4. And it's by that connection and that communion with the Lord that we worship him. And we must be filled with the spirit inside of us, this external expression and this internal expression. And Psalm 103 says, Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Our inmost being, the fabric of who we are, praise his holy name. The depths of our soul and our heart are to praise him. And finally, Psalm 19, it brings both into points, the external and the internal. May the words of my mouth, the speaking of praise, this external expression, and the meditations of my heart, what's going on in that internal world, the inner thoughts and the inner desires, may they be pleasing in your sight, my God and my my rock and my redeemer. It's this external and internal aligning in worship. The words and the sounds we make with the meditations of our heart. And to, to put this all to bed, to make this all um, come together, really. Jesus' words, um, where he reiterates from that verse in Deuteronomy about what the greatest commandment is, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. It's that call to love God with all that we are. It is all-encompassing. And as we come to worship, all of us is to worship God, everything we have. So there's just some of the attributes of what it is. To worship, some of the actions, some of the doing parts, and I guess that's almost the theory. But what about the application? What are some um, scriptural examples of the interactions that God has with His people in the context of worship? And the question it begs the question: What does He ask of us? What is pleasing to Him? That phrase that we've read in Psalm 19: that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart may be pleasing to the Lord. And again, it asks the question: What is acceptable and not acceptable? What is God looking for? Again, a handful of verses. Amos 5, and this is God speaking through the prophet Amos. It says, um, and some of it will appear on the screen, but the bit before it is um, really important as well. And this is really strong language, but it says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. And this is the Lord speaking. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. And then it says, away with the noise of your song. I will not listen to the music of your hearts. And then this is the important part. But let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never failing stream. Matthew 23, Jesus references the Pharisees and he says, but do not do what they do for they do not practice what they preach. Everything they do is for people to see. Proverbs 21, to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Hosea 6, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And finally, 1 Samuel 15, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. You see, the Bible is full of this, where it's a call of this Um, this internal reality of the truth of who God is, this internal expression of worship, aligning with this external expression of worship. It says it's better to obey and to listen, to do righteousness and justice, to have a steadfast love for the Lord than it is to make sacrifices or physical offerings. And it makes plain that living with integrity and living with honour is important to God. It's more important to him than how great our offering is. Because in reality, he doesn't want our lavish gifts and our grand gestures if our hearts aren't in it. At the end of the day, what he wants is our hearts. It's like a a husband who um, mistreats his wife all the time and every time. Um, To try and make it up to her or to try and apologize, rather than changing his actions or his behaviors, just buys a gift or buys something to try and win her back over. Actually, sometimes that's what it's like with us, with God. Sometimes we bring something to him and our hearts not in it. But actually, the call of scripture and the call of what the Lord is speaking to us this morning is that he wants our hearts' utmost. So it's clear to see that there is a worship that God requires of us. It's not lip service, it's not just words, it's not just actions or a physical expression, it's not just sacrifice or offering, whatever that may be to you. It is our whole lives. It is our whole lives poured out in devotion to a King who loves us. It's all of us that he wants. Not just a portion, not just a percentage, not just a Sunday. He wants all of us. Our thoughts, our deeds, our desires, our voices, our time, our money, our bodies. All of us. That's the kind of worship God seeks and desires. It's the kind of worship He requires and deserves. And I guess the question is, what does all of this boil down to? What do all of these scriptures point towards? Where do we go from here? It boils down to surrender. To laying down our desires, our own plans, our own gratification, our own interests, our own ambitions. To wholeheartedly and unashamedly Follow his desire, his plans, his call for his gratification and glory. Because that's the kind of worship that God asks for, that he desires and that he ultimately deserves. Because he gave all of himself upon that cross for us. That we may give all of ourselves back to him. Surrender is the key to true, authentic, Jesus-centered worship. And really quickly, I just want us to look at three things that Psalm 95 can teach us on how to do this, on how to worship in surrender. So number one is this, thanks and praise. And this is from verses one and two. It says, come before the Lord with thanksgiving and praise. And Psalm 100 says, to enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. And you know, there's a reason that the scriptures are so full of thanksgiving to God. And there's a reason why it's so full of calls for us to give thanks. Because when we give thanks, regardless of what we're going through, regardless of the situations that surround us, in that there's an acknowledgement of who he is. And it's not escapism, it's not running away from the reality of life, it's rather a recentering, a refocusing and a reminding of the God whom we trust and the God in whom we put our hope. And the God that never fails us, the God that never leaves us, the God that is good all the time, the God that is faithful all the time. And in doing this, in bringing thankful hearts before the Lord, we surrender to His will. We say, Not my will, but yours. Not my way, but yours. Not my plans, but yours, Jesus. We say, I know you know what is best for me. And it might not look or happen as I think it should or I want it to. But we say, I'm believing that you work all things together for the good of those who love you. And in this, we acknowledge our love for him and who he is. So that's number one. Thanks and praise is our surrender. Number two is to come before him with softened and open hearts. And again, in Psalm 95, it's really easy to read the first six verses where it talks about kind of the physical attributes of worship. Um, And quite often I've read this and stopped at verse (laughs) 6. But actually, the whole chapter of this psalm talks about worship, and it's all making the same point. It starts with, give thanks, sing, and shout to the Lord for all he's done. Then there's the reminder of who we are, that we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. And then it speaks to the Israelites, and a moment in their history that they would immediately remember as soon as these two place names were mentioned. Meribah and Massa. In the verse, verse 7, it says, Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah and Massah. And here, if, if, if you know the Bible, um, you might recall the story in Exodus um, where the Israelites have just come out of Egypt and they're wandering around the desert. Um, and they're beginning to grumble and complain to Moses. And they're saying things like, why are we even here? What's the point? Um, we, would, we would have been better off being back in Egypt than being here. Where is God in all this? Then Moses goes away and seeks the Lord and asks him what to do. And the Lord says to Moses, you need to go back and you need to hit this rock. And water's going to come rushing out. And it will be enough to drink for everybody. And Moses goes back and does just as the Lord said. And lo and behold, um, water flows from this rock. But the, the reminder here where it says, do not harden your hearts. The Israelites had hardened their hearts towards God's promise. They'd hardened their hearts towards his faithfulness and his provision. They'd lost sight of where they'd come from, from Egypt, from slavery, from torment, to living in freedom and living in God's rule. The psalm reminded them of God's faithfulness. And to us, church, I wonder if God wants to remind us of the same thing His faithfulness to us. You see, the worship that God desires and asks of us involves us having softened and open hearts, trusting in Him and knowing that He's done it before and He will do it again, that He is faithful. So to worship, number one is to come with thanks and praise. Number two is to have softened and open hearts. And finally, number three is to listen and hear his voice. This is verse seven. Psalm 95 says, today, if only you would hear his voice. You see, church, he's always speaking to us. But most of the time, we're so caught up in the busyness of our lives that we just don't take the time to stop and listen. And often we see worship, um, rightly so, as minister, ministering to, blessing, praising God for all that he is. And that is so right. But actually, it's a joy and a privilege that it's more than that. That it works both ways. That we praise God, we enter into his presence, and we offer our hearts to him in worship, in word, in deed, in song, in dance, in service, whatever it might be. But in that, he responds. He blesses us too. He meets with us. He heals us. He sets us free. He speaks truth and life over our lives. It's not one way, it's both ways. And let me tell you today, it is direct access to a father who loves us and loves to give good gifts to his children. And it goes without saying that my words here, uh, nor the words from this passage, are to try and scold or to wag a finger, but it's an invitation to the more. It's an invitation to the more of God. That this box that we put him in sometimes, he's so, so, so much bigger than that. That his power and his ability is far more than we could even ask or imagine, as it says in Ephesians. There is always more to God. So let's listen to his voice. Let's hear his call and follow his lead. And that looks like obedience. It looks like reading his word and following it. And ultimately, it looks like surrendering again to his will. So there's three things, thanks and praise, softened and open hearts, and listening for his voice. We're going to wrap up in just a moment. But um, to finish, I'd love to share with you a, a story um, of, a, of a man um, who lived in the uh, 19th century um, whose testimony just speaks to a life that was riddled by um, tragedy, but on the flip side, um, a heart that was so steadfast with devotion and trust and the love of Jesus that nothing could shake his faith. So let me just read this to us. The Spafford family lived in Chicago in the 19th century. They were active in their church and their home was always open to visitors. In a short space of time, tragedy swept through their home. When he was just four years old, their son suddenly died of scarlet fever. Then, only a year later, a massive fire swept through downtown Chicago, where they were living, devastating the city, including many properties owned by the family. That day, almost 300 people lost their lives, and 100,000 were made homeless. And despite their own financial loss, the Spafford family sought to demonstrate the love of Christ by assisting those who were grief-stricken and in great need. Two years later, in 1873, they decided to go on holiday to England to visit some evangelist friends. And the father of the family was delayed because of business, so his family went ahead, his wife and their four remaining children, all daughters under the age of seven. Then tragically, on the the 22nd of November, 1873, whilst crossing, crossing the Atlantic, their vessel was struck by an iron sailing ship. And on that day, 226 people lost their lives as the ship sank in only 12 minutes. All four of the daughters died, but remarkably, their mother, Anna, survived. And after being rescued and arriving in Cardiff, she immediately sent a telegram to her husband, who was still in Chicago, with the words, Saved Alone. Immediately, the father set off to be reunited with his wife. And one day on that joy voyage to England, they passed over the very spot where the ship his family were on had sunk, and where his daughters had died. And it is said that the father then, distraught, returned to his cabin. This man's name was Horatio Spafford, Spafford, sorry. And it was here that he wrote the hymn "It Is Well with My Soul." This voyage was one of deep suffering and is the clear inspiration of the moving and well-loved hymn. He later wrote to Anna's half-sister, who who was his wife, on Thursday last we passed over the spot where she went down in mid-ocean, the waters three mile deep. And I love this bit, it says, but I do not think of our dear ones there. They are safe, dear lambs. You see, Horatio Spafford's life could have been Um, easily defined by tragedy alone. So much loss, so much trauma, so much suffering, so much death. And I have no doubt that his life was probably never the same after these things happened. But I'd argue that one of the most beautiful attributes of our God is his redemptive nature. It's his ability to turn things around, turn things that are Awful, truly awful for good. And it goes without saying, it's hard to do this. It's hard to see this. It's hard as we're grappling and dealing with things in our lives. But scripture has something to say about that, and we can't ignore it. And God has something to say about that. Psalm 30 said, He turns our mourning to dancing. Isaiah 60 says, he gives us an oil of joy instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. It's instead of, it's a straight swap, it's in replace of. He takes our sadness and gives us joy. He takes our despair and gives us a garment of praise. He's a God of redemption. And you know, through his redemptive nature, And through Horatio Spafford's willingness to surrender his life to worship and um, to devote his life to Jesus, it birthed one of the greatest worship songs ever written. Not just for the beautiful lyrics that we read or sing, but when we understand that deeper meaning of why those lyrics were written at such a time, it takes it to a whole nother level. That in the space of just two years, all five of his children tragically passed away. But still, he says, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. This is what it means to worship in surrender. And church, we have a God who redeems broken situations and broken circumstances. And he turns them for good. He never lets the enemy have the final say. He always has the final word. And that word is life. That word is life. Amen.